The Third Magpie by M.S. Clements Read by Hannah Timms Episode 2 Work demanded that the other night's inconvenience should be forgotten, just like all the others. Sergeant Mason had poked his head into the surgery to apologise to Sophie. As usual, she was friendly and brushed off the arrest as if it meant nothing to them, wishing the new recruit well and hoped he might find use for the unexpected bonus in his pay packet. That day, her life continued much like any other, a monotonous routine of pointless paperwork and complaining teens. She finished late, her list of ladies growing like their expanding wombs. The last bus home was punctual for a change. The driver, a dog-tired man who returned her smile with indifference, gave her bus pass a cursory glance before accelerating away, jolting Sophie into her usual seat. One more day ticked off the calendar. The ever-recurring scenes of her slow journey home drifted past the window. Colourful displays of hanging baskets distracted shoppers from the disappointing reality behind the shop front. Outside the Packers' Inn, Young guardsmen gathered for an after-work drink, chatting and smoking while vocally rating the flirting schoolgirls. One girl stopped to accept an offered smoke. The medic in Sophie sighed as the girl inhaled the noxious toxins, a sign of her loyalty to the nation's economy. On the opposite side of the square, a second group of recruits relaxed on a low wall, joking with each other. In front of them, a middle-aged lady was struggling with her shopping, her metal bangle repeatedly slipping down her upper arm. Not wanting to stop, she tried to nose it back behind her sleeve. Her efforts were fruitless. She struggled and continued on her way. That was when the recruits jumped off the wall as one, barging past her. Her shopping bag spilt its contents across the pavement, the clattering of tins accompanying the young men's laughter. The recruits sauntered away, pleased with their cruel comedy act. No one helped the woman gather her groceries. Commuters sidestepped neatly out of her way so as not to dirty their shoes with broken eggs. She was an inconvenience, nothing more. Forty minutes later, the bus deposited Sophie at the edge of town. The half-mile lane up to the cottage was no more than a muddy track these days. Lack of passing traffic had allowed nature to reclaim her stolen territory. Late blackberries dotted the overgrown hedgerow, providing tasty treats for the tired nurse. She licked the juice off her stained finger, then groaned with backache when she stooped to pick up the shopping. From the corner of her eye, she spied her only neighbour, Mrs Carter, standing guard at her window, watching and waiting. Already fed up, Sophie put her head down. Please don't let it be me. The persistent thumping against the wooden window frame made her heart sink. Yoo-hoo! Sophia, dear, can you spare a minute? called the elderly woman from the opened window. Of course. How can I help you? She daren't refuse Mrs Carter. The rumours abounded about her. She was a spy, an informant, an agent of Asu. They all laughed about it, but nobody was brave enough to risk her annoyance. Even before she'd had time to cross the threshold, Mrs Carter announced her demand. I want to redecorate the bathroom and I need a tiler. I'm afraid I don't know any, Sophie replied, hoping that ignorance would offer her an early escape. Mrs Carter peered over her old-fashioned glasses. Of course! Well, you wouldn't, would you, my dear? They are far too expensive these days. Likewise, 
I've only my pension, you see. Realisation hit Sophie like a slap in the face. Don't worry, Mrs Carter, we're not going away this half-term holiday. I'm sure my husband will be happy to help. Would he, my dear? Oh, that will be lovely. I'm sorry I can't pay him that much. I'm only a pensioner, you see. Dates and peppercorn pay settled. Sophie departed Mrs Carter's cottage with its all-pervasive stench of impending death. She distracted her anger with thoughts of the coming weekend and the prospect of enjoying every luxurious minute. They would be free to enjoy the Indian summer and her parents' garden would be spectacular. In the herbaceous border, late summer blooms would nod their heads loftily above the annuals below and on the terrace, they would relax and savour Anna's freshly made lemon and lavender shortbread. The welcoming smell of dinner and the velvety tones of Finn's singing in the kitchen greeted her on opening the front door. She lingered a while, her earlier complaints chastened by Solera's lyrics. Oh, mia patria, si bella e paduta. When she reached the kitchen, she saw him leaning on his arm, his face barely ten centimetres from the tablet screen. His back to her, she crept up unnoticed and deftly pulled his earphones away. What's for dinner? Finn jumped like a startled cat, his arm flicking up to wipe away a stray tear on his cheek. Christ, Soph, don't do that. I'll have a heart attack one day. She laughed, and with his face cupped in her hands, Sophie kissed him loudly on his lips. I'm a nurse. I'll give you the kiss of life. Honestly, darling, with a voice like yours, the church would kill to have you in the choir. Finn waved his manacled wrist at her. Ten years of musical training, but this little bracelet says no. The Church of New Albany will have to look elsewhere for its next sacrificial lamb. Their loss, my gain. Sophie turned to unpack the shopping and Finn replaced the earphones. On the screen she noticed images of exotic blooms, dramatic coastlines and impossibly blue skies. Never one to miss out on programmes about gardening, she poked her husband in the ribs. What are you watching? Hmm? What are you watching? She mouthed slowly. He took off the earphones. Oh, the planet's most beautiful gardens. They all appear to be in AZ-8. Well, fancy that. Shame we live in AZ-5. Maybe we'll have a holiday there one day. Or maybe we won't, replied Finn, his glasses steaming over as he checked on the dinner. On the table was yet another night's collection of neat books and papers waiting to be marked ready to disappoint or delight their young owners. Sophie gathered them up and dropped the stack unceremoniously onto a chair. Tired, she wanted dinner and bed, but first she had to break the news to Finn about the weekend. Her inner actress was practised when it came to convincing shows. Good news, I have the whole weekend off. Henry said I was due some holiday, so he altered the rotor without that miserable old git of an office manager spotting it. He'll go absolutely ballistic. She chortled to herself, delighting at the thought of that vile bully being undermined. But isn't Henry in charge? asked Finn, while he dished out the casserole. His innocence made Sophie smile. Technically he is, but only technically. Anyway, 
I've already rung my parents and Christopher will drive up to collect us on Friday. Her husband's expression stopped her mid-flow. Oh, Michael Finlay, don't you dare give me those puppy dog eyes. Obvious dismay flashed across his face, reflecting his dread of an eternally long weekend with the in-laws. Can't we spend the time here, just the two of us? he pleaded. Sophie would not be swayed. No, Mum's promised me a trip to Greenall's nursery. There are some plants I'm after before the weather gets too cold. We'll have use of the car so I can load up the boot. He looked sullen, more like a man facing the gallows than a weekend away. Stretching across the table, she caught hold of his hand. Oh, come on, Finn. It'll be a break for both of us. No restrictions for 48 hours. He might complain, but that scant freedom meant as much to him as it did to her. 48 hours with the security guards locked outside the perimeter wall, inside at liberty to talk, laugh and argue. Nobody would be listening. That privilege was worth enduring her mother's grievances. 48 hours imagining a different life, 48 hours remembering having had a life. The Bridge Tea Room was famous for being a peaceful temple to gossip. It was the place for the well-groomed society ladies of New Albany to share their secrets with occasional shrill laughter denoting tasty morsels of information. Gloved hands waved at passing acquaintances, ensuring their presence was noted. A couple of young ladies opposite Sophie were deep in whispers, their wide-brimmed hats touching in conspiratorial communion. They leant back in the chairs, grinning at the information. Sophie thought they might be talking about her, but she couldn't be sure. Like most of the women in that tea room, their eyes were hidden by obligatory, expensive sunglasses. Women shaded from reality, just as Sophie might have been if she'd accepted a different role in Albion life. She looked down at her feet and the bag sitting next to her leg. It was from one of the smartest shops in Area Zone 5. She only went in on her mother's insistence. The pearl bead handle stood to attention and its blue velvet ribbon had been tied into a neat bow, an expensive carrier that was destined for the rubbish tip. She undid the ribbon and pulled out the parcel, touching the blue tissue, momentarily lost in thought. Would you like some of my passion fruit gatto? It really is lovely, but the calories, said her mother. Sophie nodded, but didn't stop looking at the tissue parcel. She unfolded the delicate paper. Perhaps I should take it back. Her nose wrinkled with indecision as she examined the blouse more closely. Michelle placed the teacup on the saucer and bent forward, mimicking her daughter's expression as she scrutinised the blouse. It's a lovely colour. Well, I think it suits you to a tea. That shade of green really brings out the colours in your eyes. Hold it up against your face. Sophie obliged her mother and unfurled the blouse. The fabric felt soft as a baby's skin next to her cheek. She instantly lowered it again. Oh, yes, enthused Michelle. Definitely the right shade. No, that one is a keeper. Sophie's uncertainty sought a reason to return the blouse. A bit dressy, though, and, and far more than I'd ever spend. 
When on earth would I wear it? We never go out. Her mother fiddled with a button on her dress, turning her gaze away from her daughter. If only it were possible to turn back time, rephrase those few words. It had been a surprisingly pleasant shopping trip up to the point when Sophie reminded Michelle of her self-imposed privations. Simple statements that led to rows and recriminations. Pricked with guilt, she attempted to stave off the descent into an argument. It is pretty, though. Yes, and so are you, replied Michelle, returning her daughter's smile. Sophie sipped her tea, relieved to have saved the situation with such relative ease. Her relief was short-lived. A beautiful young woman who should have her pick of successful men. It's not too late. Each of her mother's words were beautifully enunciated with razor-sharp intent. The discussion had begun. Her mother was an expert in twisting any situation into finding fault with Sophie's marriage. Have we started already? We settle this nonsense each time we meet. I am with a successful man whom I love utterly and completely. He's a schoolteacher. Hardly successful. But I suppose you probably do love him by now. It's not our place to interfere. We just want what's best for you. Of course she wanted to interfere. That was the whole point of the ridiculous discussions. Sophie's inner resentment rose with her mother's meddling. I hear Admiral Carter's son is looking for a wife. You know, he's a professor and such a clever chap. Sophie seethed. Oh, bloody hell, Mum! Why don't you just shut up? Michelle, startled by her daughter's outburst, replaced her floral teacup on the saucer and put her finger to her daughter's lips. Don't swear, Sophia. Sophie backed off, reaching for her tea, but Michelle hadn't finished. The law of the land is clear. Foreigners cannot teach our sons. She turned her cup on the saucer, then suddenly stopped, pushing it aside, and leant across the table. At least Daddy was able to help, she whispered. You'll never get it, will you? Finn loved lecturing, but some nut job in go Sophia, stop it! Her mother looked about the room, concerned Sophie's comments might be overheard. Her red lips were almost touching the flesh of her daughter. I hear what you are saying, but we can't. Not here. This wasn't my fault. You must see that, darling. It wasn't our fault. Michelle shifted back into her chair. The volume control on her voice turned up to an acceptable comment level. There were decisions taken by greater men to ensure the well-being of the country. It was a difficult period. We live in dangerous times. Sophie saw through her mother. Michelle, the Albion devotee, always suitably loyal to the lawmakers. Deference where deference was due. But that didn't change anything. As far as Sophie was concerned, the blame lay with her parents' generation, and there would be no forgiveness or forgetting their role in her husband's polite dismissal. Her mother was as guilty as the rest of her peers. They gave tacit approval for the injustice. That crime was theirs to own, but the life sentence must be served by others. Sophie tugged at her hat, her cheeks flushed with anger and her forehead itchy from the hatband. Do you want me to help? It's much easier to wear correctly with longer hair. You should let it grow. No, thank you. I can cope perfectly well even with short hair, Sophie snapped back. Her hat straightened, she returned to her tea, studiously avoiding eye contact with her mother. 
Sophie flipped over her phone to glance at the screen. It was early. Christopher was not due to collect them until later. Two more dragging hours to search her brain for uncontroversial subjects. She returned the phone to her handbag. It would be a quiet mother and daughter lunch. To avoid the vacuous inanities of New Albany's idle elite, Sophie stared out of the window. The late afternoon sun shone brightly, but the temperature was dropping. Some passing shoppers had dispensed with their summer hats and were sporting the soft felt ones of winter warmth. Muted colours, almost sombre. Why did fashion dictate that the autumn should be so colourless, so bland? Sophie decided she would wear her scarlet hat and coat to church the following Sunday, and her scarlet gloves too, whatever the temperature. About to pour herself another cup of tea, Sophie noticed her mother glaring at a young woman's uncovered knees. Do you want some more, Mum? she said before her mother could make a snide comment. Michelle rolled her eyes. Thank you, darling. I'm parched. Oh, I have some news about Auntie Emma's eldest. Why on earth do you insist on calling her Auntie Emma? She's no relation to us. I've known Auntie Emma all my married life. She is my dearest friend. Sophie, her anger still simmering, asked, As dear to you as Anna, or have you forgotten the woman currently cooking in your house? Visibly hurt by Sophie's comment, Michelle's lips tightened into a pout before answering. This is not the time, and definitely not the place. Sophie apologised. Her mother was right. The diners might appear engrossed in trivia, but some ears were always attuned to comments that could harm the innocent. The last thing that Sophie wanted was for Anna to be endangered because of her goddaughter's antipathy towards her own mother. Emma's eldest, Jack is expecting his sixth son, Emma's eighth grandchild. Isn't that fantastic? She paused to allow her daughter to acknowledge the change of subject. Sophie said nothing. Well, once the baby's born, they are all going to be invited to AZ1 for a medal ceremony. Six healthy boys. We're thinking of taking a girl's trip up to the capital to visit the shops. She wants it to be a special outfit. We'll probably go next time Daddy's out of the country. Stay in the flat, get tickets to a concert or two. Why don't you come? It'll give you an excuse to wear that blouse. Sophie had already lost interest in her mother's wittering. Outside the tea room window, an ancient mulberry tree spread its branches lazily across the green. Its yellowing leaves reflected the sun's rays, a lifespan centuries long oblivious to the unknown faces in unknown places, nature unbending to the whims of fickle politicians and their arbitrary codes of conduct. Sophia, are you listening to me? Sorry, what did you say? Honestly, darling, away with the fairies again. Would you like to come with us to the capital, shopping? My treat. No, Mum. I can't keep taking time off. Henry will sack me and we certainly can't live on Finn's salary. Michelle nodded her head in reluctant acceptance. You know, it was funny. Emma and I used to imagine you marrying their younger son, Adam. You remember Adam, don't you? Of course I remember Adam. It was Sophie's turn to roll her eyes as she recalled that annoying child. A bully, just like his brother, he would chase her into the copse at the bottom perimeter of the garden and demand his prize. 
Her bile rose with the recollection of her long hair being yanked to the ground. Then he'd sit astride her chest. His back to her, he would lift her skirt. To take a good look. Later, she wore trousers whenever he was due to visit. He responded by teasing her, telling her to cut her hair short if she wanted to dress like a boy. I would have rather gouged my eyes out with forks than marry that disgusting twerp. Sophia L., what a vile thing to say! Vile and true. Draining her teacup, she thanked her lucky stars that she had married Finn. Michelle She wandered the house in post-lunch apathy, examining the evidence of her ownership. Over the years, she'd erased all trace of her mother and stepfather, all except for the piano. The days of diamonds sparkling by candlelight as manifestos were discussed were long gone. When was the last time a crisis meeting was held in her drawing room? And when was the last time she brokered a convenient alliance with nothing more than polite conversation and good cheer? In the 16 years since Sophie's wedding, nothing. There'd been no urgent call for her to arrange a light buffet for 20, or any reason to call the caterers for a lavish garden party. Tim conducted his work in the office. She'd been shut out. Her role had been diminished from magnificent hostess to who? Who exactly was Michelle Smith? Out in the garden, her daughter was chatting with Christopher and his wife Anna. She didn't need to hear the conversation to know the topic. Animated hands waved towards the herbaceous borders and broad smiles filled their faces. Acquaintances would compliment Michelle on the beauty of the garden, yet she could barely identify a daisy. It would be pointless to head outside and join them. There was nothing she could add. Snatching up a magazine, she licked her forefinger and was ready to flick through the pages when the music began. Anyone else would hear the delicacy and feeling of the playing. But Michelle merely recoiled as those bullet-like notes fired into her. She should have sold it, got rid of it. But Tim liked the idea of owning a prestigious grand piano, even though he couldn't play. But he could. Finn could play it almost as well as her mother. People like Finn were not her equal. They lacked her strength and determination. There would be no one to hear. Tim was ensconced in his den, and Sophie, the only one who'd intercede, was with Anna and Christopher. Unconsciously, and in time with the music, she tapped her teeth with manicured nails, planning her attack. She would do it. From the library door, she stood observing the interloper, engrossed with the rise and fall of the music. The late afternoon sun was shining through the French windows, bouncing off the gleaming burr walnut of the piano. Most of the time, it was abandoned, almost lonely, much like Finn. Yet under his gentle command, her mother's treasure sang. Anger swelled at the sight of him. Finn, a gentleman. But as far as Michelle was concerned, he was a dangerous man. A man capable of using the deadly weapons of gallantry and sensitivity to steal Sophie away from her. A man whose gifts could only be sadness and despair. 
Michelle brushed past him and sat on the small armchair beside the piano. The music ceased and Finn's hands retreated to his lap. I hope you don't mind me playing, he said. Michelle shrugged. She turned in the seat to stare out of the window. Not at all. Glancing over her shoulder, she saw him straighten his back, ready to play again. I really ought to sell it, as no one else ever plays the thing. Tell me, what was that tune? Chopin's Etude Number no. 9 in F minor. Michelle turned back to the piano, and irritated by the absence of a score, said, You appear to have a good memory. He smiled and thanked her. The desire to throw a vase at him made her catch her breath. Her loathing stemmed from fear. Fear and loathing so often found hand in hand, gaining strength from the malignancy of the other. She'd won before, and she would do it again. Why don't you leave her? Be free once more, and go back to your own people. Is it spite that keeps you from freeing Sophie? Michelle paused to take pleasure in his reaction. Finn lowered his eyes, focusing on the patterns of the rug, his face reddening beneath her scrutiny. Sophie was not there to argue for her timorous husband, and he would have no choice but to hear the words spat at him. Michelle's eyes closed with pleasure, arming herself for another assault on the tethered victim. So she did not see his chest rising, and with his mask of civility dropped, he countered her attack. Free her! Free her! <laughs> Who exactly is the prisoner? Tell me, which of us wears the curse of imprisonment? I signed that contract because I love Sophie. She is the only reason I am here. She loves me and I love her and I will never do anything to hurt her. Michelle smirked. He was such an amateur. You say you love her, but are you so sure that she loves you? I am. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can change our love for each other. How sweet. You believe love is set in stone. It isn't. Love, just like life itself, is subject to change. Surely you of all people should understand that. Finn turned on the stool, gently lowered the lid on the piano keys, and departed the room without another word. Once more she was victorious, and yet alone in the library there was no one to see the tears working their way down Michelle's cheek. Thank you for listening to this production of The Third Magpie. To support our work, please consider buying or gifting a digital copy of The Third Magpie from Amazon or post a review on Goodreads. Register at pageupbooks.co.uk to stay in touch with future projects. That's pageupbooks, P-G-U-P, like the key on your keyboard, P-G-U-P, books.co.uk. Thank you.